Welcome to the Spot Check. Join your resident occupational and speech therapists, Amelia and Heather, as they dive in and get real with patients and clinicians about living with chronic disease. Welcome back to the Spot Check with Amelia and Heather. We hope you guys all had a wonderful Thanksgiving and got some rest, got to eat some good food, got to see family, friends through <laughs> through your video chats, hopefully. So, Amelia, how was your Thanksgiving? It was good. I was just chilling mostly by the beach. We didn't go anywhere to eat. We just bought stuff from the grocery store and cook. We did one night of like Whataburger takeout because that's what my friend wanted. I was like, okay, Whataburger. So I got a number one with fries and drinks. So it was, it was pretty good. It was different. Okay. How about you, Heather? My Thanksgiving was, it was good. It was, it was a day of reflection, of gratitude. I get, it was interesting. I kind of just, I drove to the beach myself, just by myself and went and sat for several hours and just took in the beauty and uh, journaled, reflected, and just, I just needed that time to recharge. And then I came home and I did some cooking. Yeah, it was good. It was a nice day. It was, it was a good day off. I wish I'd had Friday off, but you know, back at it. We wanted to continue discussion a little bit about, not a little bit, we're going to actually dive in. We're going to take a deep dive um, about head and neck cancer. And this may not be everyone's cup of tea, but this is something that we feel is super important for clinicians and really anyone who may be listening who has any interest in head and neck cancer, or even if you don't and you happen to be in any medical setting, because this is a very special and unique population who you really have to look at with a different lens, I feel. And it's not just an outpatient setting. It can be acute care, inpatient rehab, long-term acute, skilled nursing, home health. It's across the spectrum. And I have alluded to this before, but I have for 16 years have been aware of different head and neck cancers. I have treated them in acute care, inpatient rehab a little bit, and then most recently outpatient, but not as involved as I have in the last five years. So I have had to educate myself a lot and taken a lot of courses. I've actually presented at several courses now, but I will share with you a story of what prompted my interest of wanting to learn more and discover more about the ins and outs of head and neck cancer, why we do what we do for treatment, how they make their treatment decisions. So I was doing an evaluation on a gentleman who was in his 30s. He was a landscaper, very hardworking. He was in his 30s and he had had a tongue resection. They had taken a flap, um, so a part of the muscle and skin from his thigh and rebuilt half of his tongue with that. Okay, I'm familiar with flaps, saw a lot of them. They had done a flap of his tongue using part of his thigh. So I go to do my oral mech evaluation on him and he opens his mouth and he sticks out his tongue and Amelia, his tongue was still covered with hair from his leg. No one told me ever to expect that or prepare for that. But being the professional that I am, of course, I'm not going to say anything. But 
If anyone knows me at all, they know my facial expressions are awful. I cannot hide them. So I'm like, okay, let me see your tongue. I'm like, oh my God, there's hair on this man's tongue. What am I supposed to do with this? And, you know, in that moment, I was mixed, I had these mixed, mixed emotions of panic because I wasn't sure what to do. Empathy because this man is desperately trying to rehabilitate and get better. And curiosity because I wanted to know what I could do to help improve his outcomes and then get him back to restoring his life. So that was kind of a big, big moment for me in my journey with learning more about head and neck cancer. Do you have any, any stories that kind of prompted you to learning more? No, I just remember when I was a student and I was observing my CI treating this patient, this man had radiation to his neck and he has very limited mobility in his neck. And I was just thinking like, literally have to turn his whole body to look into a direction. And I just saw firsthand how significant and how powerful the treatment of head and neck lymphedema can be. That really intrigued me. And I think I talked to you about the orbital cancer and how my CI saw a patient whose eyeball has been removed and she has to do a care in the eyeball. That actually scares me away from it. Yeah, there's definitely those patients that stick with you. And there's there's those patients that power me forward and inspire me to know better, be better, and to learn more so I can I can do better in my profession. Right. And talking about stories, I just remember, you know, I took the head and neck lymphedema class from Norton and Brad Smith was the instructor and he showed us pictures of his patients. There are many of Brad Smith patients who actually have tongue swelling and their tongue literally sticks out of their mouth because it's so big and you can't close, you can't even close your mouth because of that. That has become a picture that just stuck with me because I was like, I cannot even imagine what does that feel like to have a tongue that stick out so big that you cannot close your mouth, number one. And I'm just imagining like the discomfort. And then he showed us a picture of his treatment and how after 45 minutes, he get his patient to, to be able to close their mouth because the swelling has gone down so much. So to me, it just shows that we need more therapists out there who knows about these things, who can identify them and help patients, not just at, you know, he was working at MD Anderson at that time, not just at MD Anderson, but at different hospitals across the United States, because not everybody can get their treatment down in a best cancer center in their region. Some people has to be treated locally in their regional medical center and if we don't share this knowledge and we don't have as many therapists who know what they're looking at and know how they can help and find resources so they can help their patient, I think we're doing a disservice because these patients can, I mean, it doesn't take a lot to help them in those initial acute stage. And that can help so much with their quality of care. So I guess that's why we're on this journey and this trail of like really looking into head and neck cancer because like you said earlier, it's not a huge population. But I think we can make such a difference in these people's life. Right. I agree with you. Not everyone, and I would say the large percentage of patients cannot be treated at a large medical facility, a state-of-the-art head and neck cancer facility, a cancer facility 
the caliber of MD Anderson or Cancer Centers of America. Most of them are going to end up at your local outpatient clinic, at your local community hospital. So the so every clinic, everyday clinicians, the, every generalist should have some working knowledge of what they're looking for, what those red flags are when they comes across their when it comes across their desk, if we shall you say. So when we get that order, whether it be in acute care, whether it be outpatient, even inpatient rehab, there are patients there for cardiac issues, for orthopedic issues, who've had a new stroke. And may actually be having some signs and symptoms of a head and neck cancer that have as been yet undiagnosed, we may be some of the first ones to notice that and start doing that investigation. And it takes, you know, a little bit of knowledge, but not a lot, just a little bit of understanding of that system and what you're looking for in the medical record to guide that patient and guide the medical team to the best care that that patient can have. So that's really what we wanted to start today with is what do we look for and what are those things that jump out at us as questions to get when we get a head and neck referral or we're doing a medical chart review and what are those things we're looking for? What are those important values for us? Just a couple of things I wanted to share as we're thinking about these this population We've talked a little bit about numbers before, I think, but, you know, 2018 statistics, there was a total of about 650,000 new head and neck cases, new, new head and neck cancer cases. Of those, the majority is lip and oral cavity. And then it goes nasopharynx, oropharynx, and hypopharynx. Almost 40% of those present at late stage, so that's stage three or stage four in their disease. And at that stage, their overall survival, that's considered advanced laryngeal cancer. For advanced laryngeal cancer, that is poor. And then early diagnosis, so that is so critical because that improves those outcomes. Low awareness of head and neck cancer, that contributes to the late diagnosis. But 80 to 90% of head and neck patients treated in the early stages, they have great survival outcomes. So let's say you have a patient that presents to you and kind of the newer thinking is it's kind of the one for three. And you kind of remember those numbers, the one for three. So if you have any one of these symptoms for three weeks, have your patient seek medical advice, more than just us, refer them to a surgical oncologist, so surgical ENT who specializes in head and neck cancer. So those are sore tongue, non-healing mouth ulcers, red, white red or white patches in the mouth, pain in the throat, persistent hoarseness, painful or difficulty swallowing, lump in the neck, and blocked nose on one side and or bloody discharge from the nose. And that's really important to kind of think about and be aware of. 
especially for speech pathologists in the outpatient world, because we often get referrals for outpatient swallow studies and the patient complains about difficulty swallowing. We frequently will say, oh, it's reflux. But do we make that connection that it could be something else? Or do we just assume that the radiologist is going to catch it and make that referral? We are all stewards of that patient's care. So we need to be aware that that could be a possibility. If we don't see anything and they have those those symptoms, we need to make that referral. So let's talk about a little bit of um, looking at looking at that chart, looking at that medical review once we get that referral to us. So identifying location of the disease. So you get you get your referral, whether whatever whatever setting you might be in, you get this referral, okay? And it says refer for speech and swallowing therapy patient with oral cancer or patient with head and neck cancer is frequently what it says. Sometimes they're specific and sometimes they're not. Amelia, what is one of the first things that you look for when you get that referral? I think I usually look for the staging of the cancer. If it has spread through the lymph nodes, also if they have any kind of surgical procedures that was done, either that be tongue resection or mandibular resection or lymph nodes removal. And then I would look into if they have radiation or chemotherapy. And finally, if they have any, they call it, any kind of skin graph or tissue graph and the site of where the graph from. Because, you know, it can, I've seen people who have the graph taken from their wrist or from their legs, and it can um, cause different impacts and different functional impairments for them. Yeah, I agree. So that's that's a good first kind of check marked or a, a checklist to kind of go through in my head as well. That's the first things I kind of think about are when were you diagnosed? Where are you at in your journey right now? Are you freshly diagnosed? What have they even done? Have they, you know, have they sent you for radiation? Have they sent you for chemotherapy? Are they planning on doing surgery? These are all really important questions and we're going to talk about these as we get further into, I think, this discussion because the different type of cancers lend themselves to different treatments and the different levels of severity and staging of the cancer also leads to different types of treatments. And those types of treatments either alone or together and so typically those are going to be surgical by itself surgical and chemotherapy surgical chemotherapy and radiation and when you have a cocktail of all of those or even just one those are going to have some very different side consequences and side effects that will have different outcomes for that patient and we're going to handle that patient and treat them a little bit differently because we know what those expected outcomes are going to be. I I say that because for a long time, I am guilty of not really looking and understanding fully what that diagnosis and what those outcomes maybe were going to be. 
So for somebody who was a late stage cancer, who probably didn't have a completely great outcome, I maybe spent a lot of my time trying to fix them maybe more than they probably ever could have been fixed. So a lot of time, a lot of effort went into trying to restore a hundred percent. When I feel like now when I look back, my efforts maybe should have been on more compensatory strategies and preparation for the immediate future, if that makes sense. So I think one of the things you said were to kind of look at location. So location of the cancer. <laughs> Obviously, we want to know where it's at. And y'all know you will get some evaluations, some orders sometimes that just says generalized head and neck cancer. So you're like, okay, where, where is it? <laughs> okay, your head and neck. There are a lot of places where the, that can be. And your patient shows up and you say, okay, your doctor referred me, referred you to us and tell me where your cancer is. And they're like, I don't know, it's like somewhere, somewhere in my mouth, somewhere, I don't know, like my jaw, my tongue. And they are not always the best historians. So what do we do? Do we just take that and say, okay, well, somewhere here. So it's just generally in the mouth. So I think we got, we got a good handle on that. What do we need to do for that? Usually, if a patient is a poor historian, right, we can, number one, look at the chart. If we're lucky, they are treated in the same hospital system that we are, and we can find them through medical history. Number two, if they're such a poor historian, the second thing we can do is ask them for permission to call their referring doctors and ask the medical assistant to send us some records. Hopefully, there's some stuff there. <laughs> If all else fail, we can always ask them who's their, the name of their oncologist or anyone who treated them along the way, if they can remember. And if that also fail, we can always ask them if we can call their family member. Hopefully, there's one. Yeah. Sometimes you have to play detective and it takes a little bit of extra time that Let's face it, we're always busy. We don't always have a lot of extra time. None of us do. I would say with these patients, it's particularly important to take that extra few minutes to try to get a hold of those records. Make a call to the referring physician, get a hold of their medical assistant. More often than not, they can fax you over their last treatment notes. They can email them to you pretty quickly. That is very beneficial because you really need to know the location of the disease for a couple of reasons. One, we really need to know, were, was there salivary gland involvement? Because that is going to make a huge difference in, well, obviously the production of their saliva, but that really makes a huge difference in how they are going to orally prepare their food when they chew it's going to make a big difference in obviously their mucus secretions it 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 also it, it affects when we look at 
if the salivary glands were involved, we also want to look at what lymph nodes are involved. And this is a topic that I would uh, happily let Amelia talk about because the lymph nodes are super, super important. And if speech pathologists out there are listening right now and you tune out on this part, do not, you need, this is the part you need to wake up to. The lymph nodes are not just for the occupational or physical therapist area of the neck. It is for us to really consider because this is really impactful for their voice and swallowing. And if we do not know what lymphedema is and do not know if lymph node removal or lymph node involvement is at play, we are seriously, seriously doing a disservice to our patients. So Amelia is the, the lymphedema queen. So Amelia, tell us a little bit about the lymph nodes and lymphedema and how, how that affects our patients in this population. Okay, so there are definitely a few things that we can talk about. Some are have more scientific evidence and others have lesser scientific evidence, but still important to consider. So if you look at your body as a whole, you have lymphatic system everywhere, right? So the lymphatic system is, the lymphatic system main function is to filtrate and also for part of your waste system. So filtration and removal of waste, right? So if we think about it, and it's part, also part of your immune system. So usually an adult would have between 400 to about 700 lymph nodes. We don't know the numbers for sure because unless you start taking them out all and count them, then you don't really know how many you have in your body. But about a third of them are in the abdominal and then a third of them are in your neck. So if you think about the neck having about 100 to 200 lymph nodes, right, just in the neck, I think that shows the importance of your head and neck as a part of your body and how that, because I mean, we know anything that is like have the most off in a certain area, we know that that area is important. So two, about 200 lymph nodes just in your neck. More or less. I mean, I don't really have a solid number. Some people say 90, some people say a third. So I'm guessing about a hundred to 200 are in your neck. So anytime they do even a biopsy or definitely when they do a surgical dissection, we are disrupting the, that lymph node pattern, that pattern, that removal of the waste, of the, the lymph waste. Right. Exactly. I mean, that is surrounding your neck, your throat. And, you know, like there is not a lot of studies connecting lymphatic nodes removal and radiation and chemotherapy in the head and neck population. However, there are studies looking at that in the patient with breast cancer. So we know that when only one or two nodes are removed, the chances for a patient with breast cancer to have lymphedema is about 6%. But then when you combine that with radiation and chemotherapy, their risk for lymphedema is about 30% plus. So now if you kind of apply that to head and neck lymphedema or head and neck um, cancer population, I think it's probably pretty similar because most patients who have cancer in the head and neck, especially the one that's been studied, probably are in the later stage and they all have radiation and they all have some sort of nodes removal or biopsy. So studies to study shows that about 70 to 90% of patients actually develop lymphedema, internal or external or both. 
Wow, that's that's a really high percentage. And I believe it after now having seen it for so many years. And that I think we should dedicate an episode just specifically to that because it's such a huge, hugely important topic, especially in this population and deserves its own, I think its own time and attention to evaluation, treatment, special considerations of But I think it's something that we all need to be aware of what it is, how to recognize it when it pops up in the medical chart, and how to refer for that. So speech pathologists, when you see that in any of your chart reviews, when there's been any surgical dissection in any level of the neck, that should be an automatic referral for your lymphedema specialist. Usually that's occupational therapists, but whoever your lymphedema specialist is. Absolutely. Because, I mean, another thing that I think we're going to start looking into is how the your neck lymphatic nodes actually drains part of the drainage system for your brain. So if you oh. think about how our patient who have head and neck lymphedema, their swelling will be the most when they wake up in the morning because they sleep and then there's no gravity to help drain the fluid, right? But then also we know that your brain actually drains at night when you sleep. So if you're connecting the two together, I am kind of worried because there's really no long-term studies yet about the impact of head and neck lymphedema with your cognitive function and status in the long run. So I think that will be very interesting in the future. You just read my mind. That that just made me think of many questions. Like if there's that backup of the protein fluids of waste in your brain that can't drain out, what is those? What are those consequences? Mm-hmm. Right, Doctor Sivek, Doctor Eva Sivek. I mean, she talks about it all the time. How the excessive amyloid protein that is not filtered out in your brain is actually has been correlated with the occurrence of. Parkinson's and also Alzheimer's disease. So I think in the future, we may see more studies about this because right now it's still up and coming and it's still being researched thoroughly. So I always love it when Amelia drops some knowledge on us, helps us upgrade our uh, gray matter. (laughs) Thank you, Amelia. But it's really important for us to recognize that. So if you see that, again, I can't stress enough, any, any radiation, any surgical dissection to any of those lymph nodes. And I think we've got a nice little little chart we can probably post, we can link to from a great article that we can repeat that. We've got a great table from a chart that we can link to for y'all to take a look at. Some other things to consider, Amelia touched on earlier, is treatment and particularly radiation. So the total dose, how much how much radiation did they get? How many treatments did they get? So four treatments is a lot different than 46 treatments. A huge difference, huge difference. You also want to look at, you know, which tissues were in the field of radiation. Was it very localized to say, you know, the tonsil area or was it a wide field? So like the whole larynx. That's a big difference. And one of the big reasons we want to know that is what area was treated and what the field was is once the radiation has been targeted and it hits the mandible, that really increases the risk of osteoradionecrosis of the mandible. And then we also have to think about radiation fibrosis syndrome. And if we're not familiar with radiation fibrosis syndrome, 
we will go into length of that with that in another episode soon because that is a very serious issue that is a very difficult and stubborn thing to treat that is very it's very detrimental to our patients' lives. So it's it's fibrotic tissue that forms in the the muscles of the oral cavity where they essentially they cannot open their mouth. It can form in on the tongue and the neck and they can't turn their heads, they can't shrug their shoulders, they can't open their mouth, move their tongue. Amelia and I have a gentleman right now that I just evaluated this week who sweet, sweet, sweet man, he can move his tongue maybe, I don't know, two millimeters, three millimeters if that in any direction. And it's all because of radiation fibrosis. So we have got our work cut out for us. And the other thing we wanna kind of consider as well is in addition to the surgical resection, we think about organ preservation. We want to also know that because in terms of speech, voice, swallowing, and airway function, how are they preserving their airway or how are they not? Because some patients elect not to have any treatment whatsoever. So if they are not going to have any treatment, we may need to still work with them on their swallowing and their airway and preserving their airway. So we may need to help them with we may need to help them with maneuvers on um, airway clearance, on their voicing, on how to make themselves more on how to make themselves heard better because their vocal cords are involved. There's there's a lot of considerations, but again, just kind of talking about things to look for in the chart. Amelia, what, what am I missing so far? We've talked about lymphedema. That's a huge one. We talk about lymphedema. We talk about the tongue movement. We talk about radiation fibrosis. We kind of mentioned neck range of motion. That's something that I'll always look at. And then another thing that, you know, I always consider as an OT is there's this person living situation. Do they live by themselves? Do they live with a family member? Can they do their basic ADL by themselves? Because a lot of the times, especially with a complex procedure, patients may have, what do you call that again? Feeding tube. So they can continue getting the nutrients that they need while they're still continuing with treatment. So I think knowing the living situation and knowing the kind of like the their level of independence is important because then we can know like, okay, at home, this is what they're doing by themselves. They may be dependent completely for all of their ADL by their family members. So then we know that when we are teaching things, not only we have to teach the patient, but also we have to teach the caregiver, whether that be their spouse or their their kids or their family members or even a caregiver from the outside agency because then this person will not be able to do it by themselves. Excellent point caregiver support is critical and something that we may not consider. I always like to look at caregiver support as well from the points you spoke about, but also from who can help my patient take care of their wounds, who can help them with their tube feeds, who can be an extra set of hands because frequently as our patients are going through their treatment, um, their recovery, they're weak, their, their fine motor skills are not not as great as they maybe once were. It can be lots of different things like peripheral neuropathy and some different things that have happened. But if they have a trach and we're dealing with a speaking valve or they're having to manage wound management issues, they frequently cannot do it themselves or they can't see inside their mouth to manage it themselves. 
So we need to rely on a caregiver to help them with that and do some training with that. And I don't know that it's always a consideration that we're thinking about that, but it really, it really should be. And then the other part of that too, is I think about there is typically a level of depression and psychosocial, psychological adjustment that comes with this diagnosis and then going through the treatment and everyone needs some backup somewhere. So I think two brains are better than one in receiving information and that care plan. Absolutely. I think you nailed it on the head there where, you know, we have to consider, especially with the wound care when they have skin graft, because a lot of times they can have non-healing wound for a long time. I have a lady who has, well, she has a lot going on, but she has mandibular resection uh, with graft tissue and skin graft coming from her calf. And for the longest time, like her calf is not healing and she's continue leaking. And at some point it was very swollen that I considered giving her another kind of compression for her calf. However, you know, like I just kind of consider the whole picture, right? I She is dealing with her um, neck swelling. She also has arm swelling because she has a history of breast cancer from four years ago. So I told her that she needs to wear a compression garment for her arm. So because her leg swelling is not that significant and we're just watching it and I'm still treating her, I didn't actually recommend a compression sock just because, again, you know, it's three compression devices on three body parts. I think that's a lot to manage. However, this lady is very independent. She managed her own wound care and she is fine. But if she's dependent and she has more complication, I may totally look at my treatment approach differently. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for sharing that. I always think patient stories are a good way to illustrate what we're trying to do, what we're trying to talk about. So it's, I think it's important to understand what we're looking at in the chart. And then it's also important to remember most of the time, these patients have comorbidities. It's not that it's just a straight up, a straight, a straight up head and neck cancer. Although, you know, with our younger population, it is. Our younger population, it frequently is like an HPV, a squamous cell carcinoma. That may be their only comorbidity. But with our older populations, you know, they've had a stroke or two. They have diabetes. They have like coronary artery disease, they have COPD, they have other things that can kind of mask and mimic some of their head and neck symptoms. So for the speech pathologist, these patients may be having some dysphagia, they may have dysarthria, so some slurred speech, they may have, you know, severely dry mouth or fatigue that can easily be written off as like part of their former stroke or part of some of their medications they may be taking for their their high blood pressure. But that's when we have to put on our detective hat and we have to be aware that these things all tied in together. This is part of the cancer. And this is where we really need to get them referred for appropriate cancer evaluation and treatment. And the next segment we're gonna talk about is what do you do when that patient is now sitting in front of you staring at you, waiting for you to make the right evaluation calls and help them. And you're looking back at them going, oh my God, I'm the professional. What am I supposed to do here? Absolutely. I think you just kind of nail it. I mean, that's kind of the process, right? When we, Whenever as a clinician, we have a new patient, we look at the chart, we sort of plan, okay, this is what I'm going to ask them. And now the patient is here. Oh crap, I still don't know what I'm doing. 
So what next? So I think what we want to go through the next few episodes is kind of walking you through like, okay, this is what you can do as a professional to make sure that you address all the patient's concern. And maybe, you know, of course, we have to provide resources. So any resources that we have available, we'll share it with you guys too. But I think that's kind of like our plan for the next few episodes, just to break it down. Because I, we know that this is not something that people come across very often. And a lot of times too, like you may be the, the only person in your clinic who's treating this type of patient, or you may be the only clinician. So we just want to be a resource and, you know, just making sure that we share what we have gathered over the last few years. Exactly. We want to be helpful. We want to take some of that scariness away from treating this population because they need us. They need us in the big clinics and they need us in these small, small clinics that are attached to these little tiny country hospitals. Doesn't matter. Cancer happens to anyone, anywhere, despite location. And if you are a licensed therapist, you have the capability of knowing how to handle and how to treat these patients with knowledge and compassion and the best evidence-based treatment you can. We are here to help you and we want to help you. We have done a lot of research on our own and try to learn how to help these patients. So that's what that's really what our passion and our motivation is, is we want to help you. So we will provide and share whatever information we have gathered, because that's what we do, is we want to help and, and share. So that's what we're here for. If you have questions, please reach out to us. Let us know. We will try to help you with what questions you have. If you have suggestions, you have stories you want to share, we would love to hear it because this is a community of support. This is a community of growth and knowledge and sharing. And we are all in this together. Yep, exactly. I think you just kind of like summarize the heart of what we're doing this. Anyway, have a great week. And until the next time. Until next time, we'll talk to you later. Please subscribe to the Spot Check from your provider of choice. Show notes and links can be found at the spotcheckpodcast.com. Follow us on Instagram. Amelia is the lymph therapist and Heather is the medical SLP. Thank y'all. Stay safe out there.